This podcast is a peek behind the curtain for those of us who never had the pleasure of serving America in uniform. And we seek to highlight the pride, privilege, benefit, and sometimes sacrifice of that service that's unique to just 1% of the citizenry. While usually appreciated and often revered, their service is foreign to most, yet they represent threads woven into the very fabric of our culture. These are their stories. These are their demons. These are their lessons. This is the Carry the Load podcast. And I was 24 when I went to Dom as a captain, you know, regular army captain. I'd volunteered for the war. My wife wanted me to resign. I couldn't resign. I had to go to war. I had a chance to be a general's aide in Korea. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to go to the war at all, see. So uh, I made a choice that I have to serve my country. I want to go to my reunions at West Point, be proud with the people that did go in country and so forth. What was the climate in June of 67 in Vietnam? Uh, in Vietnam, well, all, you know, we, I don't ever remember discussing anything. I mean, uh, I'd gone into Vietnam August 1st, 1966, and I'd originally been a prisoner of war interrogator. Uh, I transferred to special forces in country, airborne qualified, no Fort Bragg school, but I got a, uh, had an assignment to be a, 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 a B team, as they call it back then, uh, S2 intelligence officer. Uh, I got it transferred to special forces. They changed my orders to a clandestine unit. I asked somebody eventually when I could find out what it was as espionage against Cambodia, you know. So I'm thinking, man, I'm going to be on the circuit, the cocktail circuit in the embassies in Saigon. No, I was going to be up on the border, you know, uh, at special forces camp sending agents back into Cambodia, which was a privileged sanctuary. For th- three months, I lived in safe houses. Uh, undercover civilian clothes with Cambodian anti-communist young men to train them to go be infiltrated on the border by helicopter insertion to go into the border. They were unsuccessful, triple canopy jungle. And then my third assignment was at a special forces camp on the border uh, at Dok To, which was near Cambodia, Laos, tri-border point. Uh, and an enemy uh, combat um, combat hardened North Vietnamese regular army battalion with pith helmets and khaki uniforms. This wasn't Viet Cong with black pajamas. They came in uh, from a privileged privilege sanctuary, ambushed two of our patrols, killed two out of three Green Berets on one camp, uh, in one ambush about five, six, seven miles from our camp. Uh, quick reaction force comes in to bring our bodies out because we always want to rescue our uh, dead, dead, um, Casualties. Casualties, yeah, you know, which was so sad. Maybe all four of them were killed. But anyway, the the noose was tightening. So I was a military intelligence officer, transferred uh, to intelligence, false name, army captain. My name was another name. And um, my commanding officer sent me a radio message from Saigon. He says, I'm coming up to pick you up at 9.30 a.m. June 17th. 1967, you know, basically my operation's over. I couldn't move agents into that area because all the communists were around. So, you know, what am I going to do? So the the noose is tightening. The noose is tightening. I might as well get out of camp. I have 10 and a half months done. I was going to, I'd never taken a five-day R&R, probably take a five-day R&R, be back at headquarters, get a replacement up there, never go back up country, as we called it. And my, I was basically finished. And I had one more year in my resignation and for, as an army officer would have been effective. So I'm ready to go for every, every two hour shift in an army special forces, a camp, you have an American on duty. And I was awake between four and six. That was my assignment that day. Heavy mortar and rocket barrage starts at 4.30 a.m. that morning. I'm leaving five hours later. So I am five hours from safety. Attack starts, 
you know, what do you do? You, you do what you're trained to do. You know, you get counter battery fire, get flares in the air in case there's an enemy ground attack, and you get counter battery fire. So I'm literally grabbing guys to the three mortar pits to, to be loaders and to get those mortar pits uh, armed and start to fire against the enemy positions, which we figured we knew Was where they normal? were. Was this normal? Huh? Was this normal? Um, that's the first attack I'd ever been under. But I mean, is that right? Yeah, that's the first time I'd come under fire, but that was enough, <laughs> you know, to say the least. Uh, so that's what I'm in the middle of. And all of a sudden, bam, I'm on my stomach. I mean, I'm, I'm flat on the ground. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that I didn't, uh, you know, usually a, a parachute landing fall, you know, you put your arm around you so you fall on your shoulder or whatever. I fell flat, but didn't, I didn't feel the thing, Todd. I did not feel any pain. But my left leg was taken off traumatically. You felt no pain. No pain. The Lord put me into shock or something. But I mean, it was a shock to the degree that I still knew what was happening. Because I recall, uh, I didn't know that there, a combat medic had come and started treating me. I but lost you a, knew you'd been hit. Oh, but, well, no, I didn't know what, I'm not sure I knew what happened. I was on my stomach. I didn't know what happened to my legs. And a combat medic takes care of me. Another um, Green Beret team, team member, both of them put me on a litter take me downstairs to the, uh, the, the, the medic, team medic's bunker where I'm lying there. And two important things I said during that. Number one, I don't know why I was this generous or magnanimous. I said, treat the others before me. And that, that turned up in my award for a silver star. Number two, I said, be sure my wife knows what happened because I'm going to die. Combat medic Jimmy Hill lives in Florida says, Captain, you're not going to die. I'm taking care of you. There's somebody, and he's told me later, there was another person in that bunker that day, and I knew what he meant, the good Lord that saved me. Uh, right leg's broken in five places. Had to go in and have 25 pints of blood, A negative. There was not enough blood at the Pleiku mash. They had to literally contact the air base and the special forces camp. You men come in. Uh, we have a wounded that needs A negative blood to save my life. I came back within... A week to Brook Army Hospital, second leg broken in five places, amputated 10 days later. 15 months in the hospital, um, f 14 weeks in a closed psychiatric ward. I have to pause there yeah. because I need to understand. Yeah. <clears throat> when, when did you first come to the realization of your new reality? I guess when the pain hit me because I had to have morphine every three hours for six weeks. I mean, you know, just any, any movement of, and then you just feel this pain at the bottom of your stumps, you know, I mean, just horrendous pain. And I had a injury right here. Uh, I was somewhat paralyzed because I must've fallen like that. Um, I realized with, with pain every three hours and, and not being able to take care of myself in the bed, you know, and getting a, you know, getting bald not because I'm old like now, but bald because of laying on the pillow all that time. And being around hospital ward and seeing the amputees, seeing the blinded, you know, that's all the depression in a military hospital, you know. So that's when I realized. And, and, and then they'd say, well, you're going to get artificial legs. That's fine. So then I worried about making a living again, uh, having children again. Uh, again, I mean, having children, was there anything that impacted my system? So the combination of everything, eight months and a fifth, eight months after amputation, 15 month tour, I'm scared. So you were left to your own devices. Your, your, your mind is racing because, <clears throat> because you don't have a mission right now 
outside of worrying about yourself. Yeah, getting, is that getting fair? My leg, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, physically, I had to, I, I began to anticipate. I all of us go through an incredibly horrendous process with open wounds on your thigh. Had to take a bone out of my rib, put it down there, so when the, the, the bone, they took skin off my uh, stomach and closed this off and then put a bone there so it could take the pressure. So I have an extra bone and, and uh, uh, bone like that in both, both kneecaps. It took from my rib. And so there I am and I went four days without sleep. Four days without sleep. I promise you, if I keep you awake for four hours, I don't care how tough you are, you, are, you will crack because yeah, you've got to have your sleep. So I cracked. So they put me in a closed psychiatric ward for 14 weeks. I had to have individual psychotherapy, which means you see a psychiatrist for an hour, three times a week. You go to group therapy. You got these other people. The majority of the people in the group therapy were people that had busted out of basic training. They hadn't even been in combat. Very interesting. But anyway, I lasted that and then slowly eased back into um, starting a new life, which was getting an MBA at SMU and then, you know, under the Veterans Vocational Rehabilitation Program. But um, I was just scared. I was mad at God. I was oh, mad at God. Okay, I, I, I definitely want to dive into that. But I, I, I want to I find out a little bit more. You said that, that, that you were married at the time. Yeah. Talk about the relationships that you were traversing as it relates to your family and specifically your wife at the time. Well, my... Um, my father, a, a, a telegram was delivered both to my home, to my wife here in Dallas, plus at my home in, uh, in El Paso, my parents' home in El Paso. And so they got telegrams only to know that uh, I was very seriously, called it VSI, very seriously injured. So uh, my parents were there within 48 hours of my coming back. My wife was there at Brook the night I showed up uh, because I'd called her from San Francisco. Um, there where we overnighted. Uh, my wife was an incredible wife during all that time. She was just, she quit SMU where she had um, six credit hours to go. She was there every single day. She got an apartment off post, gave up her education, obviously to take care of me. Was great for me through the years. I was hurting, I was hurting emotionally, physically, um, all that all that time frame, getting myself rehabilitated. She was a wonderful wife. Um, the divorce was because she had spousal post-traumatic stress. That's part of why we got a divorce eventually. Something you don't hear about. You ever. don't think about the spouses and the family and the children with what they go through when we go through combat and we have post-traumatic stress with the disorder. Now the D part, they, they want to change the name. They try to change the name to make it less obvious, you know. But the fact is the dysfunction comes from addiction, disappointment, anger, sadness, lack of forgiveness for people that made a mistake. So I had all those things to deal with, but for several, for all those years, I mean, she had to put up with me with anger. Man, I had anger management because I was sad and I was angry. Why, why would oh, you be uh, mad at God? Well, originally, my faith was not that strong and I was mad at God. Why did you let this happen? Well, that's stupid. I mean, that was really stupid. And I eventually got off, off target on that one because I realized I had made the choices that put me into um, harm's way, period. Did you understand the consequences? You mean before they happened? Yes. Oh, of course not. I, I mean, listen, I was always more worried about being captured as a POW than to be KIA, killed in action. I never worried about 
I never worried about getting in. I don't know why. I mean, I wasn't a, a line infantryman up in the front slogging through the jungle. And did it? You said you got angry with with God. Did you did you get angry with the government? Did you get angry with the army? I wrote a letter to President Johnson. Oh. You know, uh, I'm supporting you and the war, and then I was crazy. I know a lot more about that war today and what caused it, what was behind it, uh, socio-political activities and so forth, than uh, than I ever knew then. And I was too young even to understand what I know now at age 80, what I've studied about the history of the war, the originations of it. That's so good. I say to myself, you know. Did we need to do that? And that's what citizens of the country, we're going to about to go to war. Why are we doing this? It, what is in the national interest of the United States of America for us to put our blood and our sacrifices and our treasury in that land to do that? We don't do that enough. We just go about our business, let the politicians take care of it. There's serpents and there's wolves and there's sheep. The, the sheep, we're the ones that go to war. We're the ones that suffer. And then the ones in the middle are the wolves. They just, they're the greedy ones. They, they're the ones that want to make money. They're not deliberately um, evil like the serpents are that are in society. But um, they, don't, they don't forgive and they don't confess their sins. And these other people are the wolves. They just profit from whatever it is. But it's the little people that, that, that suffer. Well, I want to I wanna go back to your, you know, your physical recovery and battlefield there. Um, the VA is notorious for giving a lot of drugs. What was your experience in your recovery as it related to the drugs? I've been there eight months when the close psychiatric ward, 14 weeks um, happened. And that was a horrible time, horrible time. Had to pump me heavy, heavy antidepressants again, you know, and then slowly ease me off. But for several years, I saw a psychiatrist and took pills, antidepressants, until I got my faith act together, uh, went to a church and said, Jesus is my savior. I don't need to have this happen to me. Get with your program. Do you, Ten, feel, do you feel you were depressed? Oh, gosh, yes. I knew I was. I knew. Well, I didn't. I, know, I knew how I felt. I didn't have the uh, understanding and depth to define that. But let me tell you something about what happened to me. Ten years after 1968, when I was in a closed psychiatric ward, depressed, individual psychotherapy, ten years later, Todd, I am in the governor's office in Austin, Texas, 1978, with my office ten feet from the, the, the the office of the governor of Texas. His office is here, his secretary, my secretary, my office, right there, 10 feet from the governor's office, 10 years after I had. You talk about a recovery that the Lord brought me through, that's a pretty good recovery. That's a very good recovery. 10 years later. It's very impressive. Uh, 10 March. feet away from the governor's office for two and a half years. So what got you to that point? Well, I think it was going to a church, and I got in a Bible study. A classmate of mine from West Point was a seminary student, so we had 10 Vietnam vets with their spouses, so the 10 of us were in a Bible study. That helped a lot. Just kind of get my act together and stop feeling sorry for myself. Okay, reality therapy, and that's what I try to do with, um, with veterans. Reality therapy, what's your issue? What's bothering you? What's caused you to be here and, and have these different issues? Okay, so I want to kind of transition to society now. Uh, it's obviously very well known, uh, very well publicized. The American society was not um, accepting 
of what was going on, and they took it out on the soldiers. You know, and, and I got to tell you, to me, it's one of the, the worst times in our history. I mean, we're, we, we should be very embarrassed, and I think we are. How were you accepted, addressed, choose your, your adjective or your, or your noun or your verb with society? I left the Army uh, September of 68. I went immediately to SMU. Rented a, rented a home about a mile from SMU. So I sat in a class with sophomores for the most part. They could care. I've rarely ever had a conversation with any of them. None of them cared about asking me any questions. So I just went went to school, went home, you know, got involved with the, with the church. I had a bunch of friends, you know, and um, I started inching into politics and so forth. But were um, you ostracized by them? Oh, no, no, way? no. It was just neutral, just neutral. I mean, it wasn't anything uh, good, wasn't anything bad. That's all there is to it. Now, through the years, I began to hear the stories about our people coming back and the things that they faced back in this country. I have an anecdote about that that relates to this issue. When I was the public affairs officer at the Dallas VA Medical Center, right after uh, Bush went into uh, Iraq in uh, 2003, um, a pastor of a local church, which is very near here, by the way, came into my office because he was working on getting good water to the Iraqis, wells and so forth, which is a very noble purpose. So we're, they're, they're talking to me. They want to come in. They want to have a protest to President Bush's incursion into Iraq on the VA campus. I said, huh, forget about it. You're not going to have a protest to this war on this campus where the rest of us fought in past wars. And so they started it. So they got the big picture. We, we're, not, we're wasting our time. They start out the door. I stopped them at the door, Todd, and I said, wait a minute. I want to tell you something. We came back from Vietnam and we were vilified. The people could not separate back then the warrior from the war. I said, you can protest this war all you want to. Do not protest us. Now, that was a Friday. I went down the next day across the street from the VA hospital. Great big banner. We protest the war, but not the warriors. That's beautiful. Made my case. Made my case. One of the best things I ever did as veterans, of, you know, public affairs officer in four years you talked in your uh in your recovery about the need to audit certain things audit audit and you, you talked about you have to audit unhealed wounds you have to audit uh unmet needs and auditing um uh untied issues yeah un unhealed hurts can you talk can you talk about that a little bit? Because I know we've got a lot of, of, of young men and women who are, who are still dealing with a lot of that. What do you mean by auditing? Yeah, well, specifically and practically speaking, when I uh, talk to vets, I have this little tract, of course, that I, that I gave you. But it is setting up on a, on a sheet of paper, unhealed hurts, unmet needs, unresolved issues. You know, needs, hurts, issues. Writing them down on a piece of paper, identifying what they are. What would it take to uh, heal the relationship with my children? What would it take to relate, uh, heal the relationship with my wife? What would it take to heal uh, the relationship of my anger, the, the, the fact that I've got an anger? What would it take to help me be a better employee, uh, just a better person? What would it take to make me stop drinking to excess, definitely to stop taking drugs? What would it take to control my anger better? What is it that's bothering me that causes that anger? And write those issues down. Now, it's, you know, it's, it's a Q, what you call a QED, you know, uh, 
a solution. And so my solution, simply enough, it may be very simplistic, and it is, but pray specifically that what you wrote down in number in column two that would solve problem one, address problem column one, try it. Give it a try. I've done it, man, and it has worked. Were suicide challenges, was that a, was that a big deal? For I wasn't aware of it during the, the 60s. I wasn't, but you know, the thing is that, that I've discovered is a lot of it is what I call an empty nest syndrome for Vietnam vets. They come back, they do their best, they get their care at the VA hospital, they stay angry, they stay mad, they do get married, they do have children, and then at age 50, everybody's gone. They're by themselves, empty nest. And that's when everything, they have time to think back on their everything that's happened, they have time, you know, and they've never really dealt with it, you know, and it may be that they've become homeless, and they've really given up, you know. Is it possible to be homeless with a roof over your head? The spiritual and the emotional side of homelessness is really what I'm talking about, and that's, oh, what, yeah. that's what it feels like has happened. And, I, and the, the strange thing is, I, you know, we talked about it a minute ago, I feel like we've atoned for a lot of our societal sins, the way we treated the warrior versus the war then, now military is very revered. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a lot of appreciation that, that is given, and I think it's genuine, but yet people feel more homeless spiritually and, and emotionally coming out of the service than they ever have. So through all of your growth, what's the lesson? What, what do you want people to take away from your experiences that they can apply to their own life? I'm satisfied, man. I mean, you know, to think that at one time I was four foot six, I was bleeding. You know, they were, they were trying to stop the blood of the bleeding. They were closing off my legs. I mean, I was at the, in the pits, man, and 14 weeks in a closed psychiatric ward, and I can come out and accomplish the, the things that some people would say were something. But to me, well, I just was there and I did what I had to do and I served my country uh, to the best of my ability. I've served my state. I've heard my, served my nation uh, and veterans. Been the big thing in my life and I express my faith and I'm not reticent about expressing my faith as you can tell. I mean, I'm, I don't want to hide it under a bushel, man. I mean, because it worked for me. So I try to let other people know the light that's come upon me and come out of their darkness. So if I were to put that into something very simple, I would say, keep the faith and understand that life is just a series of seasons. What, well, like Mark Twain said, excuse me, one damn thing after another is what Mark Twain said, who was not a religious guy. <laughs> but I believe that, and it is. It's what's the next thing that's going to hit? And you got to be ready for it and face it maturely. <laughs> well, I, I have one final question for you. Um, carry the load as we talked about it's about making sure that we honor those who never got to take off the uniform uh, whether that be figurative, figuratively or literally and they carried the burden for us into the next life who are you carrying? Well I have a, 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 another I was a platoon leader and cadet platoon leader at West Point one of my cadet platoon leaders, we had three in my company, was KIA, 
um, in Vietnam, and so I always think about him. And I had 19 class, uh, 19 other classmates killed in action out of 504 graduates. So uh, I think about them all the time. We think about them all the time. We played sports. We were in academic classes with them. We we double dated with them and so forth. And so I think about them all the time. I appreciate you sharing all of that with me because that is we we really didn't even talk about the um, uh, the overlap with the. The long gray line that uh, I mean that was that was where you were and you had, yeah you had a lot of classmates and <clears throat> so I, I thank you for sharing that I thank you for sharing your story um, I could sit here and talk to you <laughs> all day long it's 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 I mean you're you're a you're a living history lesson and I really really I, I'm you've probably heard this a lot since Vietnam now but I just want to say on behalf of Carry the Load and the entire nation, welcome home. If this resonated with you in the least, please subscribe and like, and please, please, please share it with at least one person. These are the stories that make us uniquely American. These are the stories that preserve the integrity of our nation.